This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell and a dissenting point of view. A dissenting opinion here in the United States is that Henry Kissinger, the Nobel Prize winning Secretary of State during the Nixon administration, may not be the peace-loving, peacemaking, humanitarian master of diplomacy his remaining supporters believe he is. In fact, did you know that Nobel Prize he won in 1973 was for a ceasefire in the Vietnam War that was, according to a report by Reuters in January, soon ignored on the ground by both North and South Vietnam, which refused to sign the deal, claiming betrayal as Hanoi's forces were not required to withdraw from the South. And that the Nobel Prize Committee, they knew the ceasefire would not lead to a lasting peace. But they gave Kissinger the award anyway, despite an intense debate at the time within the Nobel Prize Committee itself. Yet, somehow, Kissinger still has that Nobel and was also given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian award, in 1977. And more unbelievably, after celebrating his recent birthday, Kissinger has done something millions of his victims have not been able to do, and that is evade death. Kissinger, along with Nixon, is responsible for at least 150,000 Cambodian deaths and countless more deaths, likely in the millions, from Chile to East Timor and seemingly every place in between. While Kissinger has avoided the grasp of the Grim Reaper, he has also outmaneuvered the long arm of the law, and any chance that he will ever be brought to justice for his war crimes and crimes against humanity seems slim at best. In a few minutes, we will discuss a new investigation into Kissinger and what it reveals about the fraught foreign policy of President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger, to put it mildly, when writer, author, and journalist Nick Terse returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new investigation at The Intercept, Kissinger's Killing Fields, interviews with more than 75 witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks, an exclusive archive of documents show that Henry Kissinger is responsible for even more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known. And you know, the other day I was flipping channels and a whole bunch of different stations were showing the killing fields on Henry Kissinger's birthday, which I found odd. Nick is a contributing writer for The Intercept, reporting on national security and foreign policy. He's the author most recently of Next Time They'll Come to Count the Dead, War and Survival in South Sudan, as well as Tomorrow's Battlefield, U.S. Proxy Wars, and Secret Ops in Africa, and Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. He has written for the New York Times, L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, The Nation, Village Voice, among other publications. He's received a Ridenauer Prize for investigative reporting, a James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, and is a fellow at the Nation Institute and the managing editor of TomDispatch.com, where we have many guests appear on our show from that website. You can find out more about Nick at his own website, NickTurse.com. That's T-U-R-S-E.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at NickTurse. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, it's been a few weeks. How have you been doing? Anything new in your world? Um, I've been doing pretty good. Um, I, uh, 
fortunately I had to cancel for health reasons, but I'm back in the swing and, uh, how are you feeling? Good. I went to my local YM Save this morning and worked out, so I'm fresh and chipper. Wow, uh, look at you. Yeah, I love the YMCA because it's like, you know, it's a not-for-profit, so they don't have blaring signs at you about get fit, get the trainer, get the, this. and Right, all those know. inspirational quotes. Yes, no inspiration. <laughs> it's really depressing, actually. <laughs> That's what's great about the YMCA. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. That's really great. So a uh, little bit depressing, you know, right. no inspiration. Just get in there, work out, and leave. Yeah, it's honest. That's what I like. I like that, too. I'm really uh, bummed out that the High Ridge w, or YMCA closed uh, uh, down over here in the neighborhood because the alderman said that there was no demand for that YMCA, and immediately she signed off on opening up a uh, private physical therapy center right around the corner and uh, uh, they're supposedly going to be reopening up that Y I'm hoping so there was uh, rumors of refugees uh, coming from the US Mexican borders going are going to be staying there but I'm not too sure what's happening with the High Ridge YMCA right now my now 15 month health crisis that started way back in early March 2022 with me being rushed to the emergency room and given only a 60 40 chance of survival when i was at death's door as my personal care physician would later describe it that ordeal may be finally coming to a close and soon yesterday i met yet another surgeon jesus i think i've met six surgeons throughout this whole process and we have set a time and date for what will hopefully be the final medical procedure i will need in order to completely heal myself that three-and-a-half-hour surgery will require some recovery time, which could be as short as a few days or as long as a few weeks, depending on if the very small chance of complications actually occurs. The surgery has been scheduled for Tuesday morning, June 27th, which means I will be here in the studio doing the show on Monday, June 26th. We will have a new Patreon podcast on Thursday, June 29th, but I will not be back here in studio doing a live show until Monday, July 10th. So from uh, Tuesday, July 27th until the end of July 4th week, we will be out, and we are hoping I will be well enough to do those two weeks of uh, Patreon podcast, but stay tuned in for updates. Updates. While we are off, as that will be right around the 4th of July, Independence Day here in the States, we will be playing our most patriotic interviews ever to be aired here on This Is Hell. And not surprisingly, our most patriotic interviews were not that patriotic. Far more important than the possible end of my health crisis that began with a near-death experience, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... Sorry. That's okay. Um, I just want to get the wording right. What's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? What's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishell.com. 
is Hell Radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at Chuck at This Is As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff is not only talking, he's doing something. <laughs> What's that? Jeff will be cleaning up after the dog man. Cleaning up after the dog man. At least he's got some paying work. Last week, Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane were on the show to discuss their co-authored June cover story at Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine? on the dangers of American hubris. Now, we were absolutely certain there would be people who would hear that interview that would not like it because even to suggest that the U.S. played any role in the events leading up to the war is a heretical act, a blasphemy against the myth of American innocence and exceptionalism. And having two old Cold War warriors on to support the position that U.S. foreign policy played a role in the origins of the current war is also something that you are not likely to see, read, or hear in the far more establishment media than ours. And sure enough, we got an email from Mitchell who writes, Chuck, if you want a guest who really understands Russia and Ukraine, implying that our guest did not, I suggest Branislav Slanchev, a professor at UC San Diego. His approach is centered on the history and nature of the regimes and is much more informative than the it's NATO's fault argument you had on a couple of days ago. Thanks, Mitchell. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, Mitchell. Truly appreciate it. In no way do I want to ever be in the position of defending a position taken by a guest on the show. It's their perspective, not mine. Their words did not come out of my mouth. I often get this indefinable feeling that I'm expected to defend and support every opinion taken on the show. And for me to do that, I would have to have multiple personalities to balance all those beliefs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But to do Ben and Chris's writing justice, I would point out that they did not say it was all NATO's fault. What they said was NATO was a tool of U.S. hegemony. They argued that NATO was not convinced about expanding eastward, which is what they see as a provocation of Putin and Russia, as past Russian leaders Gorbachev and Yeltsin had been warning against such expansions since the Warsaw Pact ended back in 1991. So to say their take was, it's all NATO's fault, would be misleading. And I apologize if my interview questions and their responses came out in some misleading way. More accurately, I'd say their take was, it's all the fault of post-Cold War arrogance. Post, or U.S. post-Cold War arrogance. Mitchell, as for your suggested guest, I was going to pass on someone who was currently against, uh, I'm, I'm just going to pass on someone who is currently against Ukraine negotiating any peace talks with Russia. Anybody who just opposes having any negotiations in, to end a war, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't really support that. Instead, we are still doing our best to get past guest Volodymyr Ishenko back on the show. Volodymyr uh, spoke to us live from Kyiv back in 2014 during the uprising that brought current President Zelensky to power. Volodymyr's writing back at, the t at that time uh, included a Guardian article called Maidan or Anti-Maidan. However, I haven't seen any writing for Volodymyr since uh, October. Or maybe we should have Nikolai Petro back on the show, who was also on back in 2014 to talk about the then just posted article at the nation threat of military confrontation grows in ukraine and he has a new book out called tragedy in ukraine so 
we really appreciate the comment, Mitchell. Really appreciate the suggestion. You, too, can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com and tell us whatever you'd like, and we'll likely share it here on air. Meanwhile, on our Discord page, Hugh writes Chuck's monologue about the necessity of changing up the scenery and immersing yourself in nature in the most recent Patreon episode reminded me of the interview I listened to recently with Mark Berman, professor of sociology at University of Chicago. It's probably old news to everyone, uh, but just spending 15 minutes amongst trees gives you a mood boost. The part that I didn't know was that even if you're actively having a bad time on your nature walk, your brain still benefits from the time spent amongst nature. So Hugh apparently offers the pro tip of, if you're going to break up with someone or you want to share any real bad news with someone, do it in the woods. Although I will now be questioning exactly why my girlfriend wants to go for a walk in the woods every time she invites me. Hugh then shares a link to a video of Professor Berman, an interview titled, Does Neuroscience Prove We Need Urban Green Spaces? In which the professor answers the question, is living near trees good for your health? Spoiler alert, it is. Coming up, Henry freaking Kissinger, need I say more? We will have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell and the end that came for hundreds of thousands in Cambodia and millions around the world due to the policies of President Richard Nixon and, the sec and his Secretary of State, uh, Henry Kissinger. Policies uh, built on lying to the public and illegal war where crimes against humanity were rampant. Returning to This is Hell to give us an unvarnished understanding of Henry Kissinger, writer, Author, journalist, award-winning journalist Nick Terse returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new investigation at The Intercept, Kissinger's Killing Fields. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Nick. Thanks so much for having me on, Chuck. Really great to have you back on the show, sir. So uh, you write that uh, this exclusive archive of formerly classified U.S. military documents assembled from the files of a secret Pentagon task force that investigated war crimes during the 1970s. Inspector General's uh, inquiries buried amid thousands of pages of unrelated documents and other materials discovered during hundreds of hours of research at the U.S. National Archives offers previously unpublished, unreported, underappreciated evidence of civilian deaths that were kept secret during the war and remain almost entirely unknown to the American people. So secrets at the, of the war uh, taking place, but they're now at the National Archives. Did these documents just arrive at the archives? How and when did The Intercept discover that these documents existed? Did we lose Nick? Yep, I I got you back. Okay, sorry. Uh, so how uh, so how and so uh, just getting back to the question, how and uh, when did the Intercept discover that these documents existed? Because it seems like here's all these documents just waiting for somebody to re report on them. Yeah, actually, uh, I found these documents, you know, close or the the first of them close to 20 years ago uh, when I was a graduate student. I I located the uh, the war crimes working group files in the National Archives. And then I put in that the extra time that you mentioned uh, to find Inspector General's reports and, and other uh, documents in the archive and assembled this you know, exclusive collection of documents. And around uh, 2010, I took these documents as a, a rudimentary roadmap and used them to conduct on the ground investigation 
uh, in Cambodia, where I uh, visited uh, 13 villages along the Vietnamese border, spoke with uh, more than 75 Cambodian witnesses and survivors of the war. So the, the documents were there for, for a long time, and I carried out these interviews quite some time ago, but it took a very long time uh, to get this into to print for, for a number of reasons, one of which is just the uh, sort of the, the vagaries of the, uh, the, the media industry in America, which uh, doesn't always think that, uh, that older crimes are, uh, you know, carry the same weight as, as ones that were committed uh, more recently. There's also the investment in investigative journalism when you really know the editor, managing editor might not know if you're ever actually going to find anything in an investigation. But clearly there was something to be found here. Do you think that uh, here in the United States that we are very much in denial of what happened in Vietnam and we are trying to erase it, uh, you know, publicly, popularly from our history books? Yeah, I think uh, I think these are really inconvenient truths uh, that uh, most people you know, might might not want to to hear, and um, you know, combine that with the 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 notion that this is old news and we've heard this type of thing before. Um, you know, it's it's been widely known that that Kissinger has a, a lot of blood on his hands from a lot of places around the world, including Cambodia. But um, you know, what what most people have known about. Henry Kissinger's uh, role in the U.S. war in Cambodia is the sky-high bombing of, of B-52s, uh, these huge stratofortress aircrafts that dropped uh, 30 tons of, of bombs in, in uh, you know, a very circumscribed area, uh, killed a tremendous number of people. But the records that I found showed that there was also a, a much more intimate type of killing done by lower-flying fighter bombers and also an incredible amount by uh, U.S. helicopter gunships flying at uh, treetop or rooftop level. Uh, you know, that, that uh, you would have U.S. personnel who could see uh, Cambodians on the ground uh, who knew who they were killing. And at, by the same token, uh, Cambodian survivors on the ground, you know, told me that they could see the, uh, the door gunners in the sides of these helicopters. They could see the Americans right there. Uh, so this was a, a, a different type of killing. And, you know, in my investigation, I found hundreds and, and hundreds of Cambodians who were killed in, in this manner as well. And again, it's, uh, it's good to point out that the interviews that you conducted back in 2010 were still over 35 years after that bombing had occurred. Could you, uh, was there any evidence when you were in these, uh, any physical evidence when you were in these Cambodian vill villages back in 2010 that they had been a site of a crime against humanity, uh, of the illegal bombing campaign of Nixon and Kissinger's? Uh, in some villages, uh, people did bring me out to, to show me uh, bomb craters. Of course, decades later, they'd been filled in some. People would say, you know, the, the entire area used to look like this. The craters were deeper. But there was still evidence, you know, in the, the terrain where I was and, you know, people are still dealing with uh, unexploded ordnance. And in some cases, they would uh, bring me out to a, a secluded area uh, and, and show me a, a collection of American munitions uh, that were, you know, had been turned up since the war. Uh, whenever they find, um, you know, a, a uh, you know, a, a, a bomb shell, a rocket uh, in the ground when they were turning their, their fields over, they would bring it to one area and just put everything there. 
Uh, most of it looked like it was now inert. Some of it sometimes it, it was unclear. So uh, it's a persistent danger all across Southeast Asia. There are hundreds of tons, or hundreds of thousands of tons, I should say, of unexploded ordnance across uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, so that physical evidence was still there. Um, and another, you know, form of evidence that I found that was very palpable was just, um, you know, the, the the raw emotion that uh, you, know, you would see from people. Um, the the Cambodian witnesses and survivors that I talked to are are survivors in in the ultimate sense because they had to survive not only uh, this American war, but then also uh, the Khmer Rouge genocide that followed it, as and that. Uh, killed about 20% of the population, about 2 million people in Cambodia. Uh, and it was, I mean, a, a time of, of tremendous horror, tremendous trauma, overwork, torture, murder. Uh, but even you know, that tremendous amount of violence, that tremendous amount of trauma didn't blunt uh, the trauma that people had experienced during the American War and the emotion that it brought forth in them. Uh, you know, again and again, you know, it's it's been a yeah, persistent uh, issue in my career of reporting because of the type of reporting I do. You know, I'd have people uh, break down in front of me um, talking about these uh, these attacks that, that they'd survived, that their neighbors and uh, relatives had not. Uh, and, a, and a persistent question that people had, and they asked it again and again in village after village, was, you know, why did this happen? Uh, people didn't have a, a, a really good framework understanding why these attacks had occurred they uh they weren't you know really keyed into the war next door in vietnam um you know it wasn't their war they weren't a part of it uh, one day um, american planes helicopters this technology just appeared and you know began this this relentless assault on them so they didn't quite understand it they wanted uh, answers if i could provide them and they had no idea that the ultimate architect of their agony uh, was Henry Kissinger, who had been, you know, decades before, 9,000 miles away, ensconced in the White House. This reminds me of bombings in the Helmand province in Afghanistan shortly after 9-11 and how the people of Helmand province, according to one poll, I don't know how you conduct a poll in such a situation, but according to one poll, they didn't even know that 9-11 had happened. They didn't know what 9-11 was. How has uh, the bombing of Cambodia affected the, how did it affect the views of the Cambodians that you interviewed back in 2010 did they ever you know ex say to you that they hated the United States or did they ever say look we think the people of the United States are great but we understand this is their government doing this are they able to separate those two things how did it affect Cambodians views of the United States if it did at all yeah I mean um you know th these were you know people uh, rural farm folk living in, in very remote villages, you know, basically uh, the, the only Americans that they'd ever had any interactions with were those that attacked them, you know, relentlessly for, for several years in the, the late 1960s, early 1970s, and then no connection with America until I showed up decades later, um, other than, you know, what they, they'd seen on, on TV uh, in, the, in the time since, um, you know, people didn't have uh, 
you know, great animosity towards America. Uh, they also didn't ask for any type of, uh, you know, personal compensation, restitution, things like that. Uh, mostly, if people talked about uh, the United States, they they asked questions about why the United States attacked them because they they didn't understand, you know, they had no grievance with the United States, didn't understand what the U.S. grievance was with them, and in terms of something like compensation, they really asked that the United States invest in Cambodia, invest in things like infrastructure, uh, better electricity, roads, things like that. They said if, because uh, I would I would ask, you know, is there anything you, you'd want from the United States? And, you know, no one said that they wanted, you know, compensation for a, a dead relative or things like that. They did say, you know, investment would be welcome. Um, you know, they they knew the United States had had you know money and know how, and you know that they would appreciate. But to what extent did that ever occur? <laughs> it, it it did not in in any meaningful way. Uh, you know, the United States has really never acknowledged uh, you know the the scale of of the destruction in Cambodia. Uh, you know the the role that it played in ushering in uh, the Khmer Rouge. Uh, you know all all this tremendous amount of uh, violence and destruction uh there's there's been no real effort to to provide any type of compensation um you know just it it never came you write that these attacks were far more intimate as you were saying earlier and perhaps even more horrific than the violence already attributed to uh, kissinger's policies because the villages were not just bombed but also strafed by helicopter gunships and burned and looted by u.s and allied troops looted so from your experience, are secret attacks, and not just, you know, I'm not just talking about uh, in your investigation with Kissinger, but all of your experience, are secret attacks, secret bombings in this case, more likely to lead to a sense of lawlessness in their execution? Are the rules of war, are laws less likely to be followed during what are already illegal tax, attacks? And is that the point of secret wars, to be more vicious, to have a war that isn't limited by the laws of war? Well, I, I think, you know, in the, in, when it comes to Cambodia, you know, this was this was a war that, uh, that Richard Nixon and especially, you know, Henry Kissinger wanted off the books uh, for for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the the U.S. fighting in Cambodia, you know, what we've known about for years, ironically, is what's called the secret bombing. And this was. Uh, you know, planned in Kissinger's office by Kissinger and his military attache, uh, General Alexander Haig. And, you know, the, the idea of, of bombing Cambodia was uh, to attack uh, enemy sanctuaries, North Vietnamese uh, forces, South Vietnamese guerrillas who were using Cambodia. And, uh, but Cambodia was a neutral country at the time. And Kissinger knew very well that uh, Congress wouldn't authorize the bombing of a neutral country uh, that the American public would be up in arms over the expansion of the war. So, you know, they kept these attacks secret. And, you know, because uh, these types of attacks were were kept secret for so long, um, you know, and and I, I, I found this in the, the documents, uh, you know, that I, I used for this investigation. And, you know, in, in the course of the interviews, you know, all of it demonstrates a consistent disregard for Cambodian lives. You know, a failure to detect or protect civilians, to conduct post-strike assessments, to investigate civilian harm allegations, 
to prevent such damage from reoccurring, uh, to punish or otherwise hold. We'll work on getting Nick back. And these policies not only obscured the, the true toll of the conflict in Cambodia, but I think in a very real way, they set the stage for civilian carnage uh, of the, the U.S. war on terror from uh, Afghanistan to Iraq, uh, Syria to Somalia and beyond. So I, th I think in a very real sense, uh, it's, it's led to the, the type of civilian harm that we've seen uh, in the forever wars of the 21st century. I want to get back to that in just a moment, but first, to you, what explains Kissinger's and Nixon's obsession with Cambodia? Did they just imagine some sort of conspiracy that was taking place, or did they actually have evidence, maybe misleading evidence in some way, that the North Vietnamese were using Cambodia as a staging ground for attacks on U.S. troops within Vietnam? What explains that obsession that they had with Cambodia? Well, Cambodia certainly was used extensively by the, the North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese guerrillas. Uh, you know, Kissinger, Nixon, their defenders, uh, most people who write about the, the Vietnam War, uh, you know, they, they they key in on this fact and ignore the fact that uh, from about the, the same time, from the very early 1960s, before most Americans knew that that they, they were involved in uh, in the Vietnam War, much less one in Cambodia, uh, U.S. forces were straying across the border. There were cross-border operations by U.S. forces. So both sides of the war were using Cambodia in one way or another. Uh, so, you know, it, uh, Cambodia wasn't, wasn't neutral uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in total point of fact, but, uh, you know, but, but both both sides were were guilty of using it. So, um, you know, I think that's important to keep in mind. Uh, why they were so obsessed with Cambodia was that, uh, you know, Nixon had won the White House, uh, promising uh, that he had a secret plan to end the war and to end it with, uh, you know, in his, his terms, uh, peace and honor. Uh, but really, uh, there was no, no plan uh, beyond an expansion of the war. Uh, expanding it further into Laos and expanding it uh, to a great extent in Cambodia. And, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the architect of the war in Cambodia was really Kissinger. Uh, he and Haig, about a month after uh, they came to the White House, planned the, the secret bombing of the war, uh, secret bombing of, of Cambodia and an expansion of, of the war into Cambodia. Uh, the idea was that uh, you know they would they would find and destroy what in the parlance of the time was called the bamboo Pentagon. Uh, this was an idea that you know, the South Vietnamese uh, guerrillas had something akin to the the U.S. Pentagon in Cambodia. Uh, really, whatever the the high command was in the South was a, a couple of guys and a radio. Who moved between South Vietnam and, and Cambodia? Uh, there was no massive complex like the Pentagon, but uh, you know America's war managers were never able to wrap their head around the fact that someone else might conduct a war uh, differently than they did. So there was this fruitless search, fruitless bombing, uh, 
you know, to try and destroy something that never existed in the first place. And all they really did was uh, was kill uh, large numbers of Cambodians and destabilize the country to such an extent that uh, it led to the, the rise of the Khmer Rouge. So was this a military strategy that was being debated within the Nixon administration, whether to expand the war to end the war because this seems pretty contradictory if you're having one policy uh, one policy seems that will lead to the other policies so how much was this debated within the uh, Nixon administration and how poor of a military strategy was this well this was uh, the the military had been you know asking almost begging for this uh, through the Johnson administration and uh, you know uh, Lyndon Johnson for for all his faults all his administration's faults uh, you know, tried to to keep the U.S. Uh, presence in Cambodia at a, at a very low level, and it was uh, there were helicopter missions, there were cross border ground operations, but uh, but overtly, uh, you know, the the uh, the neutral status of Cambodia was was uh, uh, respected in some way, and there wasn't this this large scale attack. But uh, the military had been pushing for it, and uh, the Nixon administration, you know, gave them carte blanche then exactly what they wanted. And as as far as poor military strategies go, yes, exceptionally poor. Uh, this was this was done at uh, Kissinger's behest. I mean, this was his baby, the bombing of Cambodia, and he had a very very hands on approach to this, uh, far more than you'd see with any national security advisor before him or since. Uh, the secret bombing, what made it secret was that they they kept the bombing uh, from not only the American people, uh, almost all of Congress, but also even, uh, you know, top brass at the Pentagon. Uh, this was conducted out of Kissinger's office. There was a uh, colonel from the Pentagon who would come over with a list of targets and a map, uh, spread this out on Kissinger's desk, and Kissinger would point, strike here, strike there exceptionally hands-on when it comes to the secret bombing he picked every one of the 3,000 plus targets himself so you know he was quite literally calling the shots on this war and um, that that's how it evolved and I think that's why the, the strategy was was so poor I think there's also a really great reminder in there about how uh many people who are uh, apologists for the Vietnam War will say that the reason that the United States lost that war is because politics got involved, because it became politicized. But if it became politicized in any way, it was a politicization by Richard Nixon that was pro-military. It was not a political uh, decision that was being made as much as it was a military decision that had been made and then was being uh, supported and endorsed by the U.S. military and trying to get Richard Nixon to get involved in that uh, action. So Henry Kissinger has been a significant influence on the State Department, including former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. You were mentioning earlier how you can trace uh, Kissinger all the way up to today's forever war when it comes to foreign policy. Secretary uh, Clinton was blasted during her 2016 presidential campaign for her praise for Kissinger and her friendly relationship with him. What could these revelations that you have discovered through your intercept investigation mean for the current U.S. State Department and U.S. foreign policy? What happens when a major influence on foreign policy for over a half century 
is suddenly revealed to be responsible for far more civilian deaths than was previously understood. What uh, would that in any way have any impact, do you think? Could it have any impact on current U.S. foreign policy? Well, I mean, it's it's the dream, of course, that it, it would. But uh, the fact that Henry Kissinger had a birthday party last night at the New York Public Library in New York City. Oh, good and, Lord. Uh, and, and Anthony Blinken uh, showed up there as a guest. <sighs> Tells me that uh, that there's probably not a, a, a change in the offing. I mean, uh, Lincoln has been a, a Kissinger, uh, you know, supporter devotee for for many years, and um, so I, I'm not expecting a, a, a sea change based on this. But uh, you know, I, I do hope that this uh, adds to at least the the legacy of, of Henry Kissinger, and that um, you know. History's assessment might be uh, a, a little less kind than the, the current leadership of the State Department. I certainly hope so. And I was kind of surprised on the uh, day that it was his 100th birthday. I did see some news reports where they would say uh, Secretary of uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger is celebrating his 100th birthday. While some people are now critical of what his actions were, <laughs> he also won the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, at least they were throwing in that throwaway line. We are speaking with Nick Terse, writer, author, award-winning journalist Nick Terse, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new investigation at The Intercept, Kissinger's Killing Fields. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickterse.com, that's T-U-R-S-E, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Nick Terse, and that does it. I'm tearing up my New York Public Library card. So you quote a several-time past guest on our show, the historian Greg Grandin, who is author of a book called Kissinger's Shadow, saying, you can trace a line from the bombing of Cambodia to the present. The covert justifications for illegally bombing Cambodia became the framework for the justifications of drone strikes and forever war. It's a perfect expression of America's uh, American militarism's unbroken circle. How can bombing Cambodia lead to the forever war? And as Lindsay Koshkarian and Ashik Sadiq of the National Priorities Project said on last week's show, the major ramp up in militarism and discretionary spending increasingly being spent more on the military than all other federal programs combined. Isn't the forever war only an outcome of 9-11? How does the U.S. bombing of Cambodia set the stage for today's forever war in our post 9-11 world? Well, I, you know, I don't want to speak for Greg, but, uh, you know, as I understand it, you know, and, and this is, you know, a belief of mine, too, uh, the, the way that, uh, you know, uh, Nixon and, and Kissinger kept kept the, the bombing of Cambodia secret, they said it was uh, it was necessary um, for national security, necessary to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, that uh, you know, there there are some actions that just they have to be kept from Congress, have to be kept from the American people, and I mean, this is this has been you know a, a consistent uh, refrain I think in the forever wars. Uh, we have uh, wars that are low profile or secret carried out in our name. Uh, you know that, that secrecy is is paramount, and you know we're, we're told that this would compromise operational security. That's why we can't know. Of course, it means that there's no transparency, no accountability, and how can we know, uh, you know, how the wars or attacks are affecting uh, other countries, and you know, are they are they succeeding or, or failing in in uh, the interests of U.S. national security? It's just impossible to know. So I think that's where you find that uh, how how the bombing of Cambodia and how 
the fact that there was never any accountability uh, for that in any real sense uh, has led to today. You know, at the time uh, when it became known, um, these bombings were carried out in 1969, 1970. They did not become fully publicly known until 1973 during the great swirl of the uh, of the the Watergate investigations. And the bombing of Cambodia was actually the first article of impeachment that was drawn up for Richard Nixon. Uh, due to uh, political expediency, uh, the belief that it was easier to uh, you know, draw up articles of impeachment that could uh, oust Nixon from office, uh, they, they dropped this first of the impeachment articles, the one dealing with Cambodia. Um, and it was it was those domestic crimes that eventually caused Nixon to resign under threat of impeachment. But I think that, um, you know, if there had been, uh, you know, that that first article of impeachment about Cambodia, if there had been uh, some action by Congress, some uh, level of accountability, it's possible that you could have, uh, you know, something very different today as far as the wars go, uh, you know, real uh you know, curbs on war powers instead of, uh, you know, the, the sort of makeshift ones that exist. Yeah, I saw that in your writing, and that was really uh, disappointing to know or to find out, to learn. I shouldn't say disappointing. It was very revealing to learn that uh, that had been dropped for uh, political expediency. You write that all the while as Kissinger, you, you were mentioning the New York Public Library and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at the birthday party yesterday. You write all the while as Kissinger dated starlets. One coveted awards and rubbed shoulders with billionaires at black tie White House dinners, Hamptons galas, and other invitation-only soirees. Survivors of the U.S. war in Cambodia were left to grapple with loss, trauma, and unanswered questions. They did so largely alone and invisible to the wider world, including two Americans whose leaders had upended their lives. What does that reveal to you about the notion of celebrity and fame when it includes, along with the wealthiest and most famous, an alleged war criminal potentially responsible for millions of deaths around the world, but not only includes him among the ranks of celebrity, it also celebrates him. What does it say about celebrity when it as easily includes a movie star as it does a person who has committed crimes against humanity? Yeah, I mean, what can I say? I mean, it's exceptionally disheartening. Um, you know, Kissinger has, you know, from the time he was in office till today, uh, you know, a, a, he's been able to to manipulate the press uh, in in very sophisticated ways, uh, create this myth around himself that he's always the smartest guy in the room. Um, you know, he he uh, he's he found ways to you know slip free from from scandal. I mean, the the swirl of Watergate that I was talking about, I mean, it really consumed almost everyone else of note in the in the Nixon White House. But somehow, uh, Henry Kissinger, even though he was implicated in, in many of the Watergate crimes, uh, slipped completely free of this, uh, was actually promoted at the end of the Nixon administration from just national security advisor to both national security advisor and secretary of state at the same time held over to the Ford administration, where he continued to serve as Secretary of State. Uh, and during those years, uh, the mid-1970s, he was also voted the most admired man in America. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it tells you something about his, uh, you know, ability to, to manipulate his own myth. 
And, you know, I, uh, I had a, a run-in with Henry Kissinger trying to, to interview him for this article. And, you know, I, I, uh, I tried to get to him every which way to, to interview him. And he ducked me. Uh, you know, he didn't respond to my phone calls. Uh, I, I tried to connect to him through Kissinger Associates, the, uh, the, the firm that he's run for many years, but wasn't able to. I tried to sit in on lectures that he had, but was always barred from them. Uh, but there was a uh, conference at the U.S. State Department where he was going to be a keynote speaker. So I went there to do an ambush interview with him. And, you know, I... Uh, I was shocked. Uh, so was everyone else. After he gave his keynote address, he opened the floor up to questions. Uh, and after a couple softballs, uh, you know, I, I was able to get to the mic and ask them some pointed questions about uh, uh, some some testimony they had given before Congress about the bombing of Cambodia. And, you know, I, I've watched him then respond to this. Uh, I, I gave him some very pointed questions and, you know, he just responded with a wall of words. I mean, he just muddied all of the questions up, um, you know, and, and took, took the answers off on, on various tangents, um, you know, and, and it was, it was readily apparent that he's, you know, well-versed in, in how to do this. Um, you know, I think he just confused the audience and no one knew if he'd answered my question or not by the end of it. And, you know, they took my mic away. I wasn't able to ask follow-ups. So after that, uh, after he, he rounded up his, his questions, I rushed down and joined a scrum of people who had mobbed him after the, the talk. And these were mostly Kissinger sycophants there. And you know, they really did. They treated him, like you said, like a celebrity. They wanted uh, autograph or pictures with him or just to shake his hand. And, you know, I I always remember the uh, the person ahead of me in line was a young State Department historian who had spent the last several months listening to, uh, to Kissinger's uh, telephone conversations, recorded conversations in the White House. And, you know, this, uh, this young historian just kept gushing to him how sexy it was to listen to Kissinger's voice. Um, he'd use sexy over and over again. And I was, I was always struck by that. I thought it was, uh, you know, it was, it was very strange, but in keeping with uh, the adulation that, uh, that was getting heaped on Kissinger there. When I got up and, and spoke with him, it got, you know, a lot less sexy real fast. But uh, but yeah, this this cult around Kissinger, this celebrity, it's 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 real. And it's, uh, you know, it's been going on for decades. So how aware or unaware are those who are influenced, are those who do look up to Kissinger, that he was so deceitful, that he is a master of lies and confusion and responsible for the deaths of what are countless civilians when you consider the long-term impact of his policies. Do his supporters know of the alleged crimes and worse? Is that why they support him? Because of his record when it comes to killing civilians is what we may dislike about Kissinger, what his followers admire. Well, I think there there is a segment of uh, you know of, of Kissinger supporters who you know key in on the fact that you know it's tough talking uh, practitioner of 
uh, realpolitik, the idea that that um, you know, and and I and I think it's a real insight into to how Kissinger thinks. You know that that he saw you know so much and so many people as expendable that you're dealing with great power power politics, and you know that he was interested in winning the Vietnam War. Cambodia was a sideshow affair. He's willing to sacrifice Cambodia and by extension Cambodians in the uh, the pursuit of what he thought was uh, you know a, a greater good or uh, you know something that's more virtuous ending the the Vietnam War and you know he he showed uh, you know no concern whatsoever for what that meant for for Cambodia and I think there there is a segment of of the the public of his supporters uh, you know of those in the foreign policy establishment who also see things the same way that, uh, you know, you keep your eye on on the big picture. And, you know, if uh, a couple of uh, eggs get broken in the making of the omelet, you know, so be it. So I think there is that. And, you know, I think also, you know, Kissinger has been called now for decades a, a war criminal. But, you know, when he gets asked about this, uh, he responds with, uh, with such, uh, you know, it's, it's such a vehement response from him uh, saying that, you know, anyone who would who would make such a claim should be ashamed. It's shameful to call him a war criminal um, because uh, there are real war criminals in the world. And this demeans uh, the idea of, of war crimes uh, to, to say that he's he's responsible for deaths that he's responsible for uh, crimes against humanity, criminal activity. And, you know, I, I think the force of his response, I've, I've watched it in some interviews, it really cows the, the interviewer uh, who then backs off in this line of questioning. Uh, just recently, uh, CBS had uh, Ted Koppel interview Kissinger, and Koppel sort of brought up this uh this idea of, of Kissinger being cast as a war criminal. And again, Kissinger, uh, he responded with anger and uh, you know, dismissiveness. And you know, Koppel basically just uh, you know, folded that line of questioning and went on to, uh, to happier subjects. So again, as, a, as a, a master manipulator in this, you know, Kissinger's been you know, uh, exceptionally successful. You also point out that the Defense Department has been clear that it isn't interested in looking back at the Vietnam War to investigate any possible crimes. You then cite Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin telling Representative Sarah Jacobs, Democrat from California, at this point we don't have an intent to relitigate cases. When Representative Jacobs asked last year whether the Pentagon was planning to revisit past civilian harm allegations from the Forever Wars, the possibility that the Defense Department will investigate civilian harm in Cambodia 50 years later, you write, is nil. If the U.S. won't look back, what's the likelihood international courts or tribunals will? And can the U.S. be held accountable? Can civilian casualties of illegal bombings by the U.S., in particular in Cambodia, get justice? Is there a place that they may be able to have their grievances redressed and get justice? You know, unfortunately, I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, it's 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 very unlikely, as as you said. You know, the the Defense Department has has come out, uh, and and this is just you know when Lloyd Austin was talking, I'm I'm you know nearly certain 
you know, that, that he was only talking about the forever wars. Um, you know, the, the, the Pentagon is not interested in, in looking backward. But, you know, there have been some developments, you know, over the last, uh, you know, it's, it's the last year, two years, uh, as far as, as civilian harm uh, mitigation uh, going forward. And I, th I think that has a lot to do with, um, you know, re reporting over the last decade or so on uh, America's 21st century, you know, forever wars, especially the investigations of, of Asmat Khan, uh, a New York Times reporter, a couple of big stories in, in the New York Times magazine, including a 2021 investigation uh, called the Civilian Casualty Files. Uh, you know, Asmat did something that, that I thought for many years yet possible uh, to bring enough pressure to bear on the Pentagon that they at least had to uh, roll out a real civilian casualty mitigation plan. Now, it's it's a plan for preventing, mitigating, responding to civilian casualties, uh, also compensating them. It's only forward looking. Uh, I'll also believe it when I see it because, you know, we've heard rumblings like this for, for decades, but um, there is finally after 20 years of the forever wars after, you know, 50 years after uh, relentless bombing in, in Vietnam, uh, Laos and Cambodia, uh, some plan on the books for the Pentagon to respond to civilian casualties. So looking backward, uh, there doesn't look like there's, there's much in the way of a mechanism nor an appetite in the international community to, uh, to do so. But, um, you know, going forward, you know, maybe there's, there's some chance of, uh, you know, at least an improvement on uh, in terms of accountability uh, over what we've seen over the last 20 years. Was Nixon and Kissinger's goal to do exactly what happened in Cambodia, that is get a tyrant in power in neighboring Cambodia who can and will be, will at the behest of the United States, commit some sort of retribution, maybe against Vietnam, or will fight as a proxy or in a proxy war for the United States. Was that the point of Kissinger? Was this all the intent of Kissinger and Nixon, getting a tyrant in power, uh, whether that uh, creates a genocide or not, doesn't matter, who might be able to be side siding with the United States against Vietnam? Well, no one has ever been able to, to fully... Uh square the circle and show that uh, that Nixon and Kissinger supported uh, the the military junta uh, led by a general called La Knoll, uh, which took over right at the beginning of, of Nixon's term and, and during uh, these attacks on Cambodia. But uh, but they the Nixon administration certainly recognized him fast and uh, began supporting him. So, you know, whether they put him in power or uh, just did their utmost to keep him in power. Uh, that was uh, certainly uh, the result of of uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy, uh, U.S. military campaign in Cambodia. And then, uh, I, you know, I, I I believe that you know the the administration didn't understand what they were doing in Cambodia to the extent uh, of of uh, you know providing such a, a recruiting tool for the Khmer Rouge. When when Nixon and, and Kissinger came to the White House in 1969, uh, Khmer Rouge was a, a fringe communist uh, uh, 
group in in Cambodia, about uh, 1,000, uh, 2,000 individuals involved in, in this movement at the time. Uh, the bombing of Cambodia by the United States provided a tremendous recruiting tool. Khmer Rouge cadres would go around to villages and say that, you know, your, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, they're all being killed by these bombs. The only way to stop them is by joining us. Uh, within just a few short years, that, uh, you know, 2,000 person movement had grown to a 200,000 strong military force, which ended up taking over the country, plunged into this, this genocide, uh, killed 2 million people. Uh, but the, you know, sort of the, the, the fortunes uh, of, of war uh, make for strange bedfellows. So once the Khmer Rouge came to power, uh, Kissinger decided to uh, back the Khmer Rouge and you know, went to the Thai ambassador to let them know that um, even though they were, in Kissinger's words, murderous thugs, uh, he was very happy to have much warmer relations with them. And he did. Over the next several years, the United States helped support Cambodia's allies. They supported uh, the Khmer Rouge, uh, led by Pol Pot at the United Nations. Uh, they uh, did their utmost to keep them in power because they were using them as a hedge against uh, Vietnam. Uh, they wanted to, uh, you know, basically they wanted to stick it to, to Vietnam because uh, Vietnam had beat the United States in the Vietnam War. And, uh, and the Khmer Rouge was now uh, at odds with, uh, with the newly uh, reunited Vietnam. And, you know, Kissinger was, was fine to, to back a genocidal regime there. Uh, and this went on for years. You just more two, two more questions for you, Nick. I promise that's it. You write, in the early 2000s, Kissinger was sought for questioning in connection with human rights abuses by former South American uh, military dictatorships, but he ducked investigators, once declining to appear before a court in France and quickly leaving Paris after receiving a summons. He was never charged or prosecuted uh, for deaths in Cambodia or anywhere else. This was right around the time that we were having Christopher Hitchens on the show on a semi-regular basis, and he had talked to us about uh, his book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. And I remember all of this was coming up, that Kissinger might actually be prosecuted. He might actually be charged, that his critics were finding solace in the fact that maybe he might finally face justice, or at least, at the very least, it's going to be very difficult for him to travel anywhere in the world because there will be summons out for his arrest. Whatever became of that effort to arrest and try Kissinger? Yeah, I mean, this this went on for a while. Uh, I, mean, I think it's uh, impacted Kissinger's travel uh, for the rest of his life. So for the, the last uh, 20 plus years, uh, he does, uh, as I understand it, check with the State Department before he travels somewhere to make sure that he won't be arrested uh, the moment he, he sets foot on the ground. So, I mean, there's there's that tiny, uh, you know, modicum of accountability that comes with uh, disrupting his travel plans. But, you know, I, I think a lot of these efforts just uh, lost steam now, I, I spoke with a, uh, a human rights campaigner, an activist uh, for this article named Peter Catchell, uh, Australian-born, uh, but has lived in the UK since the early 1970s, and he was greatly affected, uh, you know, by the by the Vietnam War, by the the U.S. War in Indochina, and about the same time you're talking about, uh, just after 
Kitchen's book was published. Uh, it was a time that Slobodan Milosevic, the former president of uh, Yugoslavia, was on trial for war crimes. Uh, Tatchell said, you know, why not Kissinger? So he went and applied for uh, an arrest warrant at a magistrate's court in London under uh, an act of parliament that incorporates the laws of war into British law. And he alleged that uh, that Kissinger, you know, while he was a national security advisor um, in the, the 1960s, 1970s, commissioned, aided, uh, or abetted uh, war crimes in, in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Now, the, the judge uh, denied the application, and he said at the time he wasn't presently able to draft a precise enough charge, uh, given the evidence that Tatchell submitted. So it left the door open. So Peter Tatchell told me that he went to, uh, you know, after the arrest warrant was denied, he went to other human rights groups, international groups, um, reached out to potential witnesses in the United States. Uh, but he said that, uh, you know, he just couldn't get any traction, that people didn't see it as priority. And, you know, he he tried to, you know, in vain for, for several years to to get someone to, to help him with these charges. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, these efforts uh, to, to hold Henry Kissinger accountable, uh, they were there for, for a brief moment, and then they sort of disappeared. Uh, but uh, when I talked to Tatchell, you know, he maintained that uh, Kissinger should still have his, his day in court. And he didn't think that uh, age should be a barrier to justice. And was hopeful that uh, that someone might might finally take up the the mantle again and uh, and try and have have Kissinger arrested, so you know he can answer, uh, you know, in a court. Nick, one last question for you. We have been speaking with award-winning writer, author, and journalist Nick Terse, who has returned to this is held to discuss his new investigation at the Intercept. Kissinger's Killing Fields. Make sure you check out uh, Nick's past books that he's written. Most recently, Next Time They'll Come to Count the Dead, War and Survival in South Sudan. Tomorrow's Battlefield, U.S. Proxy Wars and Secret Ops in Africa. And a book that was featured in an interview on our show, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickturse.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Nick Terse. One last question for you, Nick, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question you hate to, uh, we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I had another one written up, but while we were having our conversation, I thought of something more hellish for you. So, right. how do you see Kissinger's hand, how do you see his influence in U.S. policy with Russia today and the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, Kissinger has gone back and forth on this. Uh, first, he was, uh, you know, uh, he was, uh, you know, for Ukraine uh, making a peace. Uh, then, you know, he's he's uh, reversed himself somewhat more recently. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, <laughs> what what everyone in the foreign policy establishment should do is uh, is is look at the record of Henry Kissinger and then uh, ignore anything he has to say. <laughs> now that is a great answer to the question from hell. Nick, I really appreciate you being back on the show. I'm going to contact you in the future to be back on. I truly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for your amazing work on your investigation into Henry Kissinger. Really appreciate you being back on the show, and I hope all is well, well with you. 
thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate uh, being back on again, and uh, I'm I'm glad to hear it looks like you're you're uh, towards the end of your your journey as far as your health uh, considerations go. Yep. So you take care. It's still not dead yet, Nick. Not dead yet. <laughs> All right. Take care, Nick. Take care. Bye. 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 Your source for anti-social media. This is Helen. Talk about anti-social media. That conversation we just had with Nick on Henry Kissinger's war crimes is the kind of conversation that if you bring it up at the dinner table with those members of your family you only see during the holidays, that might not go over socially all that well with everyone attending. I mean, starting a chat with that MAGA or even Biden or Hillary-loving aunt or uncle with, hey, did you know Henry Kissinger is a war criminal and lied to the public so he and Nixon could continue an illegal war? It's not the kind of thing that necessarily goes over well or that he contributed to the fertile environment for a genocide that he didn't really seem to care if it happened or not. And if Hammer and Hank's dead by the holidays, speaking ill of his war crimes, that might not be all that welcome either. But if you learned something from our conversation with Nick and have a better understanding of just what a monster Kissinger is and Nixon was, show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and is and every week and his podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue from me when you subscribe to our weekly patreon podcast and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online you also get a discount on this is hell merchandise you also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on patreon and the newest feature every week producer will ippen chooses a question from hell for me submitted by you patreon subscribers a a question that i have not seen nor heard nor read until will asks it on the patreon podcast that's all on this is hell on patreon only at patreon.com slash this is hell again if you have a question from hell that you would like to pose to me you can do that on patreon patreon.com slash this is hell dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some listeners are responding so far the question from hell is what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? What's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? And on uh, Twitter, we've got um, SIGS. Okay. From uh, someone who has a uh, Twitter eat, handle? Eat Fart 69. Oh, Eat Fart 69 says SIGS. Okay. Yes. A regular respondent, yes. Eat Fart 69. And uh, Frank Lou Elmo says, Your mom. Okay. All right, fine. And uh, Nick Concey says, Taxes. Okay. I could do without that obligatory budget item, you know, like the 1% do, except that I don't want to deal with moose haired and pointy shoed tax lawyers to arrange opaque Swiss, Belize, and Cayman Islands entities' banking accounts for that. Wow. That was lengthy. Yeah, <laughs> two short s- ones and one long one. <laughs> Very specific. <Yes. laughs> All right, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. 
Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. Again, Dan, what is Jeff's moment of truth about this week? Jeff will be cleaning up after the dog man. Whoever the dog man is. We will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell again later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On June 9th, 1944, 79 years ago this week, at Plötzensee Prison in Berlin, the German social democratic feminist activist Johanna Kirchner was executed by Nazis. Which makes you wonder how she avoided being executed by Nazis until three days after D-Day. In the 20 years since the outbreak of World War I, Kirchner had helped run a welfare organization that cared for women and children left destitute by the violence and economic collapse that ravaged Germany during that time. And Nazis ain't keen on caring for the destitute. Many of the refugees were moved to safer areas of the country or across the border into Switzerland, but as Hitler and the Nazi party solidified their political grip on the country, Kirchner also began hiding anti-fascists from the Gestapo and was eventually forced to move her base of operations into uh, France. That's right. Anti-fascists, members of Antifa, had to hide from Nazis. So, you know today's far-right Christian nationalist racist white supremacist would definitely have helped the Nazis because today's right in the United States seems just as afraid of Antifa as Nazis were anti-fascist feminists. After the Nazis occupied much of France, Kirchner was arrested by the Vichy regime in 1942, convicted of treason and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. She was sent to a prison in eastern Germany where she was soon discovered to be organizing the women inmates into a resistance group, and I think I'm starting to fall in love with Johanna Kirchner. After her attempts to organize a resistance behind prison walls were discovered, the authorities moved Kirchner to Berlin, where her case was reviewed and she was found guilty of spreading Marxist propaganda. The exact kind of thing that the far right in the U.S. currently wants to make a crime as conservative policies grow closer and closer to those of freaking Nazis. The Nazi judge handed down the death penalty and Kirchner met her end under the guillotine, which for some reason was surprising to me as the tool of execution. I immediately assumed, it's the Nazis. The preferred mode of killing must be a firing squad. Then I thought about it for a couple of seconds, remembered that it was only a few days after D-Day, and I bet the Nazis were probably counting their bullets because no matter how hard you try, you can't shoot a guillotine at your enemies. Also in Rotten History, June 10th, 1838, 185 years ago this week, at a farm near Myall Creek in New South Wales, Australia, a group of settlers, 10 Europeans and one African, murdered about 30 unarmed indigenous men, women, and children who had sheltered there to avoid the wandering gangs of colonial stockmen who coveted the aboriginal lands and viewed the people as little more than animals. And while Ronaldo Magaldi does exceptional research while writing rotten history, my guess is the settlers viewed the indigenous as less than animals because apparently colonists are mostly dicks. The settlers chose two indigenous teenage girls 
from the group to be taken away and abused. See what I mean? Then the settlers used swords to hack the other people to death, leaving their decapitated bodies in the dirt as they rode off to get drunk. Yes, shockingly, they were completely sober during the beheadings. Seven settlers were later arrested, found guilty, and hanged, sparking outrage in the local settler community. Such settler massacres of indigenous were common on the Australian frontier, and this one was unusual, only in that the perpetrators were arrested and brought to trial, and I would add, found guilty and executed. Other similar incidents continued well into the 20th century. Similar incidents to beheading committed by completely sober people mind you, and tens of thousands of aboriginal people were murdered. But there were few witnesses, and the murderers were almost never sought or caught or punished. Now that's Australia Fair. And I hope all of our listeners in Oceania enjoyed that joke, because nobody here in the States will get it. And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Dan, who's coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell. We will be speaking with the guest suggested to us by Chris Bugsby at Portland, Maine's alternative publication, The Bollard. Chris wrote to suggest that we have on the show Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorch. And I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>